Hello and welcome to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is my next series, Ethics Unpacked, and it's meant as a brief overview of the teaching I do in class. Hopefully, it will serve as a useful guide for those students of mine in my classes, and for those that aren't, maybe it's a good introduction to the topic in general. So a working knowledge and basic understanding of ethical principles, theories, and history is integral to proper social functioning and accurate self-assessment. It is the lens through which we may understand the motivation and perspectives of those we encounter. More valuably, it serves as a source code from which we may better interpret our own frames of reference, our inherent biases, our fundamental beliefs, and the rationalization we utilize when making decisions. The subject at first glance seems overly simplistic. Distinguish between right and wrong. Decide based on what is right, and then act according to those decisions. Now, if only the world worked in such a simple binary fashion, we probably would have no use for the study of ethical reasoning. The problem lies in the questions a complex world demands we ask. Like who determines what is right and wrong? And are things that are right always right in every circumstance? And if it is right, is it also fair? And if it's fair, is it fair to everyone? And can everyone agree on the answers to the questions? Well, if those questions are not difficult enough to contend with, Consider that they all ultimately lead to the hardest question of all. What ought we to do when we cannot get agreement? You may have already recognized that the answers to the questions are neither simple nor easy to get everyone to agree on. That's why this subject is important, not only to our professional careers, but also to our personal lives. Now you can't start a discussion about ethics without also being willing to consider other people's views. Right, so I'd like to always open with talking about the value of dissent. The capacity to dissent is a foundational part of a free and democratic society. It prevents a tyranny of majority and prevents the relegation of unpopular thoughts to only the margins. Without it, our discourse would be limited and myopic. The ability to challenge convention and consider alternative perspectives is essential to knowledge acquisition and transfer. More relevantly, being open to dissent allows for critical thinking and meaningful exploration of the multitude of variables and perspectives that influence our lived experience. In the end, you may find you are better equipped to articulate a more informed perspective. It might not be the one I present here, but at least it will be informed. So think of ethics as a transactional relationship. If you are an island by yourself, your ethics, your morals, and your values would have no significance. You could be neither ethical nor unethical. Ethics is how you action your principles and beliefs. It is the manner in which we act and the nature by which we act upon others. It is your commitment to how you will behave in society. It is the standard by which you will judge other people's actions. Above all else, it is a relationship which by definition involves other people and their perspectives. So what is ethics? The word ethics is derived from the Greek word ethos, meaning custom or character. Ethics is concerned with developing, defending, and recommending concepts of right and wrong behavior. It provides a framework for rationalizing about how we ought to act in a range of situations. See, the study of ethics cannot simply provide a list of rules and regulations prescribing content or conduct that we expect every single person to follow. Rather, it helps us understand various problems and dilemmas, 
It offers different ways of analyzing the situation and guides in the reasoning process required to address the situation. It helps develop a well-rounded perspective that includes the multitude of variables that influence on any given situation. So one way to think about ethics is to use an ABC model. You know, it's a, it's a simple shorthand way of um, understanding the content and analyzing it um, by focusing in on key parts, right? And that's gonna help simplify the process of evaluating complicated situations. So the ABC model helps you clearly identify what part of the situation you're analyzing. For something to be right or good, it must make you a better person, which is a focus on the actor. It must be the right action according to some rule, which is the focus on behavior, or have a good outcome, which is the focus on the consequence. So the A is the actor. This is the person or subject doing the action in question. The B is the behavior, the focus on what is being done. And C is the consequence. This focuses on the outcome of an action. And if you can keep in mind which part you're analyzing in any given minute, it might help in trying to apply theories to situations. So in philosophy classes, the terms morals and ethics are often used interchangeably. Uh, I'd like to operationalize these terms just so that you know it provides a little bit more clarity. So if we look at morals first, these would be the guiding principles that help a society function. They're based on the accepted norms of a given society with significant consensus. In general terms, it accounts for things a given society generally considers to be good or, or bad. They are culturally and socially dependent and are informed by customs and traditions. They are further influenced by regional, religious, gender, and class norms. So morality as guiding principles tend not to be codified, but are definitely influenced by social pressures to achieve conformity. Most people get their morality from their family, their community, or their culture. Values, on the other hand, in the broadest sense, could be considered your personal prioritization of socially accepted morality. In some cases, your values may actually run contrary to the society within which you live. They tend to be lived as personal standards of behavior. It is an inbuilt personal mechanism for differentiating right from wrong based upon the perceived value or importance you assign to moral principles. Values tend to have a narrower and more personal perspective than moral principles. Now keep in mind, Morals and values are not absolutes. While some of our, our morals and values may be static, that's unchanging over time and place, others are definitely more dynamic in nature. This means that there is a range of morals and values that have the tendency to evolve and change over our life course or from situation to situation. Dynamic morals often evolve with age and experience. However, they are largely influenced by the need to consider a large number of variables in our decision-making. I like to differentiate these from ethical codes you commonly see, whether they're you know, printed or sort of hung at organizational buildings. But ethical codes are something we're all quite familiar with. Ethical codes, in essence, are the practical application of moral principles derived from society and then codified. So organizations use an ethical code to translate their moral philosophy into practical expectations 
that every member of that organization is expected to follow. These codes tend to be objectively stated and are more specific than generic moral principles. It is common to see sanctions for nonconformity to a prescribed ethical code. And while ethical codes have value in laying the expected path out for employees or members, it does not guarantee ethical decision-making or reasoning. And that's one of the important reasons why we discuss all of these issues in this course. If you want to understand people, you have to understand human behavior and their motivation. And a good guidepost in this conversation is Abraham Maslow. He was a, a famous psychologist, and he discussed human behavior and motivation. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is one of the best known theories of motivation. Understanding human motivation and behavior is key to a career in any human-related service, law enforcement definitely falling into that category. Maslow believed that needs are similar to instincts and play a major role in motivating behavior. And the hierarchy of needs suggests that people are motivated to fulfill basic needs before moving on to others or more advanced needs. As a humanist, Maslow believed that people have an inborn desire to be self-actualized. That is to be all they can be. To achieve these ultimate goals, however, a number of more basic needs must be met first. Needs at the bottom of the pyramid he, he sort of represented are basic physical requirements, including the need for food, water, sleep, warmth. And then the next level up includes safety and security. And as you go further up the pyramid, the needs for personal self-esteem and feelings of accomplishment start to take priority. At the higher level, the growth needs are cognitive, such as the need to know and understand. So if we take a, a page out of Abraham Maslow's book, we can understand that whenever we deal with people, understanding what needs they're trying to satisfy will give us a good indication of where they are and what it is that is motivating the behavior at hand. Now, this introduction has primarily focused on introducing students to the idea um, and study of ethics writ large and contextualizing the need for the subject. But I would be remiss not to connect it directly to the field of law enforcement. After all, the purpose of the program I teach in at large, and this section is specific, in specific, is to provide students um, in a justice-related stream with tools and attitudes necessary to reason soundly and act ethically within a law enforcement context. So in order to do that effectively, we still need to build a strong foundation of knowledge on the subject. It's a good time to remind everyone that ethics is not merely some abstract philosophical subject that is disconnected from our everyday lives and practical realities. Rather, it is the bedrock of personal reflection, social interaction, and a critical consideration when con uh, contending with the existence of power and authority. So private citizens understand that our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and our Canadian Criminal Code work hand in hand to provide human rights, law, order, and, the, and protection in our society. The police services are charged with being the keepers of the law and deal with people acting outside the boundaries of our law. If you stop and think about that for a minute, what that truly means is that you may see police and potentially view them as threatening. I mean, after all, they are allowed to remove a citizen's liberty and harm them if deemed fit under the law. In order for people to not push back and rise up against the police, we must have something referred to as public trust. What this term means is that as a public, we trust that police will act in accordance with the ethical code and provide security and protection under the law 
with as little abuse of power as possible. We feel trust in the police when they apply and enforce the law using values and morals that we accept. When they act ethically and make ethical and use ethical discretion, the trust the state places in law enforcement and other public officials to carry out this duty in a responsible fashion is what we're referring to when we talk about public trust. Public trust ensures that those tasked with these duties will not abuse their power. Public trust also ensures that all public officials will be held to a higher standard than those they serve. Without ethical conduct, the police lose legitimacy. And without legitimacy, the police are ill-equipped to carry out their duties. And that's why we're going to unpack ethics over the next few episodes.